Well, good morning. Thanks, band. How's it going? Um, if you don't know me, my name is Travis. I'm one of the pastors here. And we are diving into a very short series for Holy Week. Holy Week, Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Easter. And um, if you've been around church for a long time, Every time this time of year comes around, you're like, oh, they're going to talk about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, and I'm going to talk about that again today. (laughs) But uh, one thing I've been praying all week is that it would be fresh. It wouldn't just be old news to us. I want to just start off with this verse, Luke 19. It says, right after Jesus rides triumphantly into Jerusalem, the people recognize him as the Messiah, and as he approaches Jerusalem... So it says, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. You know, I pay attention to the news. My kids are paying attention to the news nowadays. There's not a lot of peace in the news. It's actually disturbing to me. I don't know what to do with the reality that someone can walk into a school and murder a bunch of nine-year-old kids. A bunch of kids who are the same age as my little son Tate, and I think about losing him that way. I can't imagine the grief. I I could imagine it. It would be devastating. We see these things and we weep and we cry out for deliverance. The Greek here for Jesus weeping as he looks at the city, it's an out loud kind of grief. It's one that's not silent. It's one that involves the whole body, the whole body shaking with sobs, deep, shuddering sobs. Jesus is seeing the future of Jerusalem, the people. He's seeing the reality that their children will be torn from them by their enemies and killed. And he's weeping, but he's weeping at something even deeper than that. And I'm going to get into that today. Even our secular world, though, when it looks at the news, it says something is horribly wrong. When they speak of it, they use words like justice, freedom, compassion, progress, equality. We need these things. But where do we get these concepts from that our whole world just so freely assumes are self-evident? Where does the longing for peace come from? Is that just built into us as humans from nature, like Mother Nature has somehow just made us all happen and that's just an instinct that we all have that's self-evident or are they actually maybe unnatural desires and values? Some time ago, a good dear friend, someone very close to me, told me as we were working on my house together, doing a little remodeling project, took him like three days of helping me before he finally got the courage up to tell me because he had been a churchgoer and a believer as far as I knew his whole life. And he said he was deconstructing his faith. He couldn't see how Christianity could be proved to be true and so he didn't believe it anymore. And the first thing I asked him is, what are you going to live for now? What is the point of your existence? And he said, justice, community, freedom, 
compassion, progress, equality. Funny thing is, those are things that are really hard to demonstrate with scientific proof as concepts that should exist from nature, that should be self-evident, but he believes they exist. And they're strong enough, powerful enough, real enough that he can build his whole life on them. He gives his life to these values, and I would contend that they haven't come from the natural secular world at all. And ultimately, accepting those values as self-evident things that we should uphold is a form of faith in of itself. And I believe he's living by faith every single day, even though he doesn't consider himself to be a believer. I told him in that moment, I said, I believe your values come uniquely from Christianity, from Jesus Christ. Jesus is building a foundation that you are standing on and you don't even realize it, even though you may never want to step into church again, your moral imagination the things you understand to be true, your values, your assumptions, the very foundation of your worldview all came from Jesus Christ. I think if we want to look at that a little bit, we have to analyze the ancient world. If you guys will just come along with me in that, we'll get to the Bible eventually because we've got to get there. But let's just examine the world before Jesus. You know, in AD 61... Almost 2,000 years ago, a Roman senator was killed by one of his slaves. Roman custom at the time decreed that all of the man's slaves should be crucified, not just the one perp. The Roman historian Tacitus, he writes this down. He says, some in Rome, they shrank from the extreme rigor of that punishment, but the majority of the Senate agreed with Cassius, who was a senator at the time of Nero in that era, And he spoke in favor of this mass execution. And he said this. He asked this. He said, is it it your pleasure to search for arguments in a matter already weighed in the deliberations of wiser men than ourselves? Referring back to Greek scholars like Plato, Aristotle, um, or their predecessor Socrates. He's saying, basically, the ancients have already spoken. Who are we, the moderns, to object So some argued with him that innocent people might die, but Cassius argued that even though there's some injustice in every precedent, which though injurious to individuals, it has its compensation in the public advantage. Basically, he's making the argument for the greater good, where individuals can be sacrificed for the public advantage, and in this case, to make an example, to set a precedent And so in his argument, in this address, Tacitus records him as saying, as he's referring to slaves that are brought in from foreign countries and placed in their households, they have different religions, they have different customs, and he says, it's only by terror that you can hold in such a motley rabble. So in this case, the public advantage was for a small group of elites, people in power, and they had to utilize terror in order to maintain their system of oppression. So there's just a few nobles who can live, as he says in his speech, they can live singly amid numbers, safe among a trembling throng. By terror, you can hold in such a motley rabble. And so 400 men, women, and children were dragged to 400 crosses and crucified. The cross, crucifixion, 
Romans had perfected the most shameful, torturous, despicable, awful way to kill a human being. You'd be stripped naked completely. All those nice images you see of Jesus on the cross with a loincloth, that's just modern stuff. You'd be totally naked. You would be nailed to just rough timbers. The only way to breathe once you're placed upright is to prop yourself up on the nail that's holding you there through your feet. All while being spit on, whipped, mocked by a crowd of onlookers who are loving the scene. The public would come out to these executions and they would love it. This is brokenness. This is twisted human beings. But this is the world before Jesus. We get our word excruciating from the Latin excrucis, from the cross. And thus, according to Cassius, was upheld the greater wisdom of the ancients for the greater good of the empire. So the ancient world was vastly different than the things that we moderns take for granted. Our modern views weren't obvious to them. Things like we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by the creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that seems self-evident. It's written as if it's self-evident. It is not. Aristotle wrote, He wrote a series of books on politics. This is from his first book. Around 350, 340 BC. He says, For that some should rule and others to be ruled is a thing not only necessary but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked out for subjugation and others for rule. So some people, according to Aristotle, were slaves by nature. And he wrote, it's expedient and right for some to be slaves. Plato wrote very similar things about nature decreeing that some were lesser than others. The founders of classical thought, to them it was obvious that certain humans were less than human. They were born to be living tools, as Aristotle wrote. Machines used by others. And that was okay. Sometimes they're less than human. And this is the reverse of our modern thinking. We consider justice to mean all people are equal. They considered justice to be the enforcement of the natural order, which is such that it is inequality. There is a hierarchy, and that is what nature intends for the strong and the powerful to stand on the shoulders of the weak, the slaves, because that's where they're supposed to be. And Why would we disrupt the natural order? Plato wrote that. And crucifixion was considered proper for slaves because they're less than human. And one of Rome's great orators, he was a politician back then, a philosopher, Cicero, he called crucifixion the most miserable and most painful punishment appropriate to slaves alone. And it's amazing to me now, almost 2,000 years later, We have kind of a casual appreciation for the crucifixion. 
Here's a tweet from not too long ago. A friend, after going through the National Gallery of Art, well, that's Western art for you, a thousand years of crucifixions and then stripes. So I have a college degree in fine art, actually, and I just want to point out that's kind of a massive reductionism there to uh, describe all of modern art as stripes. (laughs) But she has a point. We casually stroll through climate-controlled galleries, and we're like, oh, sacred art. Depictions of death by torture. Oh, that's nice. A thousand years of these nice depictions. So Cicero says it's appropriate for a slave to be crucified, but horrible, he says, if there's a Roman citizen who's mistakenly crucified. So if you're in a different category of person, this is an awful death. He recognizes this is a horrible thing. He says it's a crime to bind a Roman citizen, to scourge him as witness, to put him to death is almost parricide, which is killing a parent, parricide. What shall I say of crucifying him so guilty an action cannot by any possibility be adequately expressed by any name bad enough for it? The Romans look at the cross. They could not casually observe it. It was despicable. So crucifixion was either appropriate, depending on if you were a slave or a person of lower status or not, or an unspeakable evil if you were of higher-born status in the natural order, depending on where you were in the hierarchy. And I want to ask the question, what if it were God on the cross? If I was in Roman sandals 2,000 years ago observing God dying on a cross, what would I think? I probably wouldn't casually stroll by it like I do in an art gallery. Our modern world has a very different view of death by crucifixion. I found this this week. This is the uh, earliest known artistic depiction of the crucifixion. This is found scratched into the wall of what was likely a dormitory for page boys during the time of Caligula, this is in the first century, possibly in the second century, they're not 100% sure. What they do know is that sometime around that time, this area was part of Caligula's royal palace, but then it was closed off and sealed up so something bigger could be built on top of it, and that's why it was preserved. And this is, somebody took a rubbing of it to clarify it a little bit, and this is kind of what it looks like. So we see as a crucifixion, there's a scene, there's a man figure stretched on a cross with a donkey head, and there's what is presumably a worshiper there. It's called the Alexamenos Graffitio. It says in Greek, Alexamenos worships his God. It's a mockery. The message of the cross had gotten to Rome, just maybe within a generation of the crucifixion event. No Roman would have shown a casual appreciation of the crucifixion, but they would mock it. You're going to worship someone who died on a cross? He's got the head of an ass. And I use that word because that's what they would have thought. What kind of God would have allowed himself to die Such an unspeakable death. He's making fun of a Christian in the act of worship. And it reminds me of 1 Corinthians 1.18 where Paul said this. 
The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. A few verses later, he says, we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But in our modern world, I would say, who's probably going to see the cross more clearly? I think the 2,000 years ago Roman would probably see it more clearly than the casual viewer of sacred art strolling through an art gallery looking at death by torture. So I'm hoping for us we can see it for what it clearly is this Easter season as we approach this time where Jesus comes into Jerusalem knowing full well in just a few days he's going to be put on a cross and die. The secular historian Tom Holland, he wrote a book not too long ago called Revolution. He says, 2,020 years after the birth of Christ, we remain the children of the Christian revolution. The most disruptive, the most influential, the most enduring revolution in history. And so whether you believe the Bible is true or not, you have to grapple with the fact that one person single-handedly turned this implement of torture and upended all of culture and turned that symbol of torture into something we want to wear on our neck willingly as a sign of God's deliverance and God's peace. A moment of God-forsaken execution turned into world domination as Christianity took over the globe. I mentioned the intro to our American Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Where do we get values like equality from? Not Aristotle, not from Plato. We've been looking for 2,000 years at this figure on a cross. We recognize the ancient world was built on a hierarchical structure that's all about inequality. They thought greatness was about dominance. And then the greatest one, God, comes and serves by dying a slave's death on the cross. He upends the entire system. He comes in at the bottom of that hierarchy. And suddenly, the whole world switches and starts believing in things like equality and compassion and freedom. So Aristotle condoned and promoted slavery. In the next sentence, I read one sentence in the very next sentence out of that politics book. He says very emphatically that nature decrees man is superior in all ways to women. And as such, men must rule. That is the natural order of things. To go against it would be a most unnatural thing. 2,000 years ago, suddenly the world built on that concept sees God die a slave's death so that we could be invited into a family as equals. Men, women, slave, free, rich, poor, an equal seat at the table. And I think you can make just a fantastic case for just simply the validity of Christianity simply from the miraculous reality that an obscure peasant from the first century upended a vast empire and Massive amounts of thought. A radical shift in the culture of the world. All right, we're going to get to some Bible. Let's pray, though. Well, Jesus, we come before you right now. God, I don't know where everybody's at in this room, but I think the thing I've been wrestling with this week is how does a world have such strong values and yet not see 
that the very foundation of those values is something that they're destroying right now. It's like our world, as they talk about injustice and equality, are sitting on a branch that is justice. It's equality. And they're taking a chainsaw to that branch and they're just about to crash and fall and they can't even see it. Taking it for granted. And God, I worry about us who are so steeped in these stories, who are so familiar with these stories. Sometimes that familiarity can lead us to this casual observance of the cross. And God, I pray that this time around, we would not approach this casually. Because we believe that you're alive and that you're here. And a God who is alive and here has something for us and has, has the power to change us. And so, God, I pray that you would soften our hearts this, this day, for Good Friday, for Easter Sunday, for all this week. And Holy Spirit, you would move and work in us. If we don't believe, help us move to belief. If we've believed but we're just stuck in something in this world that's rooted in this world that's not eternal, deliver us from that. We believe in your power. So we ask that you would do something. Thank you for being present with us. Thank you for being with us here. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Revelation 4, this is the end of the book, end of time. John gets this vision, the writer of the book. He's taken up into the throne room of God and he sees this vision. He sees majestic and glorious things. He can't even describe them. His English, trans, well, in our English translation of the original Greek is just, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Because everything on earth pales in comparison. He doesn't have the words for it. And then there's this moment in the next chapter in Revelation 5 where there's this scroll. And John is there and there's no one worthy to open the scroll. And he wants to know what's in the scroll. And he says he's weeping loudly because there's no one there who's worthy. And it says this, one of the elders said to me, weep no more, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. The worthy one appears, the lion of Judah has conquered. And yet when John looks, he doesn't see a lion, he sees a lamb looking as though it had been slain. And I don't think that's what he expected to see. But I think it sets up our Palm Sunday scene really well. Palm Sunday is a great example of expecting something and then there being a little bit of a mismatch between our expectation and the reality of what God actually does. This is a common experience for us, if we're honest. It's probably a lifelong experience. We have expectations, and then God's provision is something entirely different. Maybe in other words, we think we know what we want, <laughs> but God knows what we need. What we think we need is almost always short-sighted. It's limited. It's human. And I think what God can come and bring us in the short term can be very, very confusing, but in the long run, it's going to exceed our expectations. So the Jews were familiar with a prophecy at this time. Zechariah 9, Zechariah wrote 
In verse 9, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the context here, these people are living in the world of Plato, of Aristotle, the world where oppression is normal for those who are on the fringes of society. And they're a tiny, oppressed nation on the fringes of this evil empire. And those in power are perfectly okay with thinking of them as something less than human. And so they're reading this prophecy and they're saying, oh, a king is coming. And it must have been thrilling on one hand for them. This king is coming to deliver us. But in some ways also, it didn't really make sense. And I think rabbis were trying to make sense of this for like 600 years almost. This prophecy had been around and these students are studying this thing. They're like, how could the Messiah come in riding a donkey's colt? A liberating king comes in on the most magnificent war horse possible. This is confusing. Conquering kings don't ride a donkey's colt. If he's going to liberate us, how's that going to be? I don't get it. So let's read the story. Open your Bibles. Turn to Luke 19. In the House Bible, that's page 878. All four Gospels spend a whole bunch of time on the last seven days or so of Jesus' life in Jerusalem. And this is the very start of that in the Gospel of Luke. When he said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat So Jesus already, he obviously, he's orchestrating this. He knows exactly what he's doing. And so did the disciples. I'm just imagining their elation. They followed him around for three years or so, expecting that at some point they were going to be part of this uprising, this rebellion that would solve their problem where they're oppressed by Rome. They're expecting the king and they go, oh, this is it. This is the moment. Just imagining these two disciples that are sent. (laughs) Oh my goodness, this is so amazing. We get to be part of this. All right, this is more like it. You know, prior to this, Jesus had been telling them, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be mocked and tortured. I'm going to die. And they're like, all right, enough of that talk. Peter had already even rebuked Jesus for that. He's like, that should never happen. You're the Messiah. You're the king, right? You remember that? He's going to ride in. And now they're just going, oh, he's going to do it. It's finally coming. He's going to conquer. He's going to liberate us from the Romans, from slavery. He's going to bring in the kingdom. Okay, so they know what's going on. Probably one of them is like, wait a minute, you're just supposed to go get this cult? Like, it's somebody else's, right? So he gives them instruction for that. He's thought through it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So I'm imagining these two bumbling disciples going through and they find this cult and they're like, somebody's like, wait a minute, why are you taking my donkey? The Lord has need of it. Okay. (laughs) Cool. That makes sense. Anyway, so those who were sent away found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. Sometimes I wish that there was more to that story that we could just like watch. It must have been kind of funny. 
<laughs> if I was one of those disciples, I'd be like, I know he told me to do this, but they might like string me up as a horse thief or something. I, this, this is probably a bad thing. Anyway, let's keep reading. They brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near all the way, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest the Jews knew this prophecy. They recognized him as king. They used language from Psalm 118 where David had written about the Messiah, this one who was going to come, this one who would come and deliver. And they quote Psalm 118 here. They say, blessed, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the same Greek word as shalom. It means complete thriving, complete flourishing, complete Peace. In Mark's account of this, they add the word Hosanna, which is also in Psalm 118, which means save us. Call out for deliverance. Save us from this oppression. Make everything right. Bring about complete thriving and flourishing. And some of the Pharisees, verse 39, and the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And the Pharisees recognized what the people were up to and what they saw, and they knew the implications. They knew Jesus is now forcing their hand. Up to this point, he had kind of kept quiet about who he was, but this this was overt. This was explicit. This was obvious. The statement that he's making as he's fulfilling Zechariah 9.9 in front of all the people is, I am the conquering king. And their hand is forced because they recognize the prophecy. They recognize what the people are about to do. This is going to go one of two ways. Either Jesus is going to have to be killed or he's going to force a military coup against Rome. So they tell him to make his disciples stop. <laughs> kind of a passive way to do it, but he's like, stones are going to cry out. Humans are so short-sighted. We're, so, we're short-sighted. We don't even know what we want. They didn't know what they want. All they could see was that this one man's noise and the noise of his disciples was going to bring the wrath of Rome down on them. And Rome, who willingly slaughtered 400 innocent people because of the crime of one, what were they going to do to the Jews because of this one person? It'd be 400 slaves on crosses all over again, except it would be the whole nation on crosses. It would be Rome ruling with tyranny and power. And the people are looking and longing for deliverance. And it's like the setup to one of the great stories, right? <laughs> An unlikely hero rises up from this small but plucky desert nation on the edge of the vast evil empire. And all the odds are against them. There's a book written in 1949 by Joseph Campbell, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. This is a later cover than that because there's Luke Skywalker there on the bottom. <laughs> this book was so influential and influenced so many people, including George Lucas. It was one of the foundational sort of motivations for his writing of Star Wars and the whole story. Influenced Jim Morrison from The Doors and Bob Dylan and Jerry Garcia, Stanley Kubrick, all these great authors and writers and artists and, and filmmakers. 
George Lucas actually said, as he was talking about this book in relation to his Star Wars story, he says, its depiction of the hero's journey was his influence. And so Joseph Campbell had this theory that he placed forward in this book that all mythic narratives were simple variations of a single great story. But he did not have a Christian viewpoint on that. Because he said this, he said, the happy ending is justly scorned as a misrepresentation. For the world as we know it, as we have seen it, yields but one ending, death. Disintegration, dismemberment, and the crucifixion of our heart with the passing of the forms we have loved. And it makes me think of all the great stories that I've seen. Even back to when I was a little kid. There was a movie my friends loved and they made me watch. It was called The Land Before Time. It was these little baby dinosaurs. I know, I'm old. <laughs> I think I was nine when the movie came out. There's these little baby dinosaurs and the extinction event is kind of like happening, but they've heard of the Great Valley and its place of peace and tranquility and, and joy. And me being the nihilistic nine-year-old that I was, couldn't enjoy the story at all because I knew the true ending. They were all going extinct anyway. I hated the movie. I could not enjoy any of the joy because there was no ultimate joy to be found in it for me. That's just how my brain works. We're all going to die anyway, so what's the point? That was the thing that brought me to Jesus. <laughs> so Campbell makes the point in his book that stories that end with once upon, or that they end with, uh, they start with once upon a time, they most often end with happily ever after. So they follow this traditional storyboard, this hero's journey, but they can't be taken seriously because they belong to the never-never land of childhood, where the young mind is protected from the realities that will become terribly known soon enough. My young mind was pretty well aware of it for some reason. So in this moment, the Israelites, they're coming to Jesus, but their hope is short-sighted. It's like the little dinosaurs in the land before time looking for the Great Valley. Deliver us from Rome. Save us, Hosanna. Be the charismatic leader that we need. Galvanize the people. Free us. Bring a military revolution. Give us a nation of our own so we can have the freedom to enjoy life the way that we want to. This is the salvation that we want. And honestly, that's not a bad deal. Actually, I think that's pretty good. But it's just another great valley. You're going to die anyway. And so Jesus, when he drew near, he saw the city, he wept over it. Remember, this is deep, out loud sobs, deep sorrow. He's saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, and now they are hidden from your eyes. He's saying, listen, if I just came to save you from the Romans, it's a real threat. I get it. But what good would it be, ultimately? You don't see that you need way more than that. You see, you still have your guilt. You still have your shame. You still have your death to look forward to, whether you're delivered now or in 10 years or 20 years. It's coming. You have the problem of meaningless existence when you're delivered from the political oppression. What about the personal oppression that's inside your own soul that's destroying you? 
He says, I've come to deliver you from something that's far more enslaving and oppressive than the Romans. It's your own sin and your coming death. Every single one of you is going to die. I've come to deliver you from that. I've come to take your place. I've come to take your punishment. I've come to deal with the sin that has produced the death that's inevitable for you. And the moment the people realize, and this is where we're going to go on Good Friday, the moment the people realize that Jesus wasn't going to give them what they really wanted, they turned on him. And so five or six days later, these very same people are in a crowd, an angry mob, screaming, crucify him. I think it's a good warning for us in our modern life because I think you can be coming to church. I think you can be serving. I think you can go to small group 10 years in a row, you know, and you're, you're dutiful and you're doing your quiet times. You're reading your Bible and you're treating people nicely because you know that's what God wants. Because you think, if there's really a God, my best bet to get what I want is to do all these things. And I think the real test for us as Christians comes when the inevitable happens when God's reality doesn't meet your human short-sighted expectation. See, it's easy to be the crowd in Jerusalem shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord when he's giving you everything that you want. But what happens when his plan is different from yours? When he's doing something in your life as is inevitable, that you don't understand. Something you didn't ask for when it comes apparent that following God means he's got different ideas for the kind of life to give you than what you wanted. And so you turn away. Just like these people, they turned on him. What happens to us? The minute you realize maybe God isn't my best bet, well, you know, I kissed dating goodbye and followed the path of purity culture and God didn't give me that spouse that was promised. I did all the ethical things that he asked, and I went to school, and I got my good grades, and I did it without cheating. I did it with honor. Why isn't that career playing out? And we have our own, I think, evangelical versions of the prosperity gospel that we slip into and we sink into, where, you know, God helps those who help themselves. Do we do our best, and God does the rest? And it shatters our expectations on a sovereign God when the good things don't happen to us and the good life doesn't come and it can be confusing in the short run just like it was for the disciples. I mean, just like Zeke said this morning, in just a few short days, one of Jesus' closest followers is going to deny that he even knows Jesus. It's a dramatic shift. We're short-sighted. God is going to confound their expectations and bring about something even better than they could ever, ever possibly want it. So the reality is God will always give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. Because he knows exactly what you need. And so a few days later, Jesus is dead on a cross. They thought he was going to come put everything right. He was. He was coming to put them right with God for eternity. I want to close with one little tidbit here that I found this week. 
that I think predicts a future that's coming. And we're going to dive deeper into this on Easter Sunday because the hope of resurrection is just this marvelous, amazing thing. Pleasures forevermore at his right hand for all of eternity. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, the end of Psalm 16. Prediction of our future with Jesus. You've been made right with God. There's a pleasure forevermore coming for you. There's a little hint of it here. Um, I didn't find this anywhere else, just one commentary by Don Carson. on his, 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 He's talking about the, the book of Matthew, actually, the account in Matthew, and he talks about this cult. And So we saw in verse 30, it says, You will find a cult which no one has ever yet ridden. If you know anything about animals that you ride, if it's never been ridden, you can't just get on it and ride it. <laughs> right? Horse people, right? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I grew up around horses, but I'm not really a horse person. But especially a colt. Like this young, just active colt. And imagine getting on this thing. It's never been ridden. It's not tame. And you're riding it into a yelling crowd. And people are waving palm branches and laying coats down that you're having to walk over. This colt would not willingly do that. And Don Carson, he says, you know what? There's a casual, understated miracle present here where an unbroken young animal is totally calm under Jesus. The cult recognizes the Messiah who controls nature and who stills the storm. And he says it points to the ultimate peace that's coming. Not just peace from Roman oppression, but the one Jesus is proving to them slowly over this week that he's capable of bringing for all eternity and will bring. And the people cry out in verse 38, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Jesus didn't have to break the donkey. He just got on it because he's the Lord of nature. And the animal knew him and loved him for who he is. He's the one who's going to bring complete and ultimate healing and peace and harmony to the world for everyone and everything. That is the peace that he longs to bring, and he will bring. That final piece where all the sad things will come untrue, and Don Carson writes that this is just a little glimpse of that future that the prophet Isaiah wrote about in Isaiah 11, where he said, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. There's no hierarchy anymore, even among the natural order. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion, the fattened calf together, the little child shall lead them, the cow and the bear shall graze. Can you imagine a cow and a bear getting along? Right? This is like a Roman emperor who's in charge getting along with a slave. It's just like incomprehensible. But this is what he says is going to happen. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. Ooh, all the moms in the room. Imagine that. <laughs> the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Band, you guys can come on back up. It's a glimpse of what's coming. And Jesus rightly knows what the people truly need. And so as he draws near to Jerusalem and he faces that last week, he weeps and he sobs. If only, if only you knew the peace that I long to bring you. So there's a lot more we could pull out of this and we're going to try to for Good Friday 
and for Easter Sunday? Because one thing I didn't mention that I think really does disrupt a lot of people's faith is this concept of suffering. You can look at the logic of why we have values like peace and equality and justice, and you can look at how they all came from this moment on the cross and what Jesus brought, and you can look at how Western culture is built on that, but it still may not bring you to faith simply because you don't know what to do with suffering. The title of today's message is Surprising Hope, Deliverance. Surprising because it's a better deliverance than the one that we humanly look for. For Good Friday, we're going to talk about the hope that can exist in suffering. So I don't want to dive too deep into that right now. I want to leave it hanging a little bit. And John Larson's going to pick it up on Friday. Here's a few details about our Good Friday service, because logistics have to happen. It'll be at 7 p.m., about an hour long. It'll be in the gym, okay? And... We'll enter through the gym entrances, so don't come in, you know, these doors down here, these doors down here. Um, We're going to sit on the floor, though we will have chairs for those who really can't sit on the floor, and that's fine. We'll have lots of chairs. But bring a rug, bring a blanket. We want to lean into a little bit of that discomfort together as a church. There won't be any kids' ministry, but the nursery will be open, so if you've got young kids, plan on maybe some activities for them. Um, The nursery won't be staffed, but you'll be able to go in there if you need to, and we're not going to live stream it, so you need to come in person. So those are the details for Good Friday. I don't like suffering, but we do need to talk about it. I don't have God's ultimate view on how he answers all the questions of suffering, and even in the Bible, we don't get a lot of complete answers. When I think about someone walking into an elementary school and shooting nine-year-olds, I don't have peace in my heart about it, and I do cry out to God. And if it was my kid, I'd be screaming at God, demanding deliverance and answers. It's even the thought of one of my kids going through that and my family going through that brings tears to my eyes. But what I see here in Jesus sobbing over the people of Jerusalem and longing to bring them peace is that he has a bigger vision of peace for all of us and sometimes it goes through suffering to get to. It's in connection with eternity. It's in connection with higher things than what we see on this earth. It's in connection with God's view. And so on one hand, I don't have answers for suffering. I don't want to take too much away from what John is going to talk to us about. But it's complicated. Someone goes into a school, does a mass shooting. How do we respond? And I I think where I want to leave us today is God doesn't just care about those victims. He became a victim. He allowed himself to be taken all the way to the ultimate oppression. And so we can't really give trite answers to these big questions. But I can say that through Jesus, I'm immersed in a bigger story than Star Wars. And it's one that doesn't just inevitably end in death like all the stories would. It's one where there's a true happily ever after, one that's really real, that has captured my imagination, that I believe is actually ultimately true and offered to all of us. And it's like J.R.R. Tolkien said, he said, look, the reason you love all the myths and fairy tales is because you're living in one. And I just want to end us with asking that question for us as we consider all of world history in Jesus. What if it's true 
What if, it's, what if Jesus is the hero of heroes that will conquer the ultimate death? What if death doesn't have to be the inevitable conclusion of every story? So what if he's the myth that really happened? Let's fix our eyes on him.